Welcome to the C2C Podcast. I am your host, Derek Anderson. After holding my first event in 2010, I went on to create Startup Grind, a 400-chapter community based in over 100 countries. Along the way, I discovered the greatest marketing tool of all time, your customers. Yet, I couldn't find anyone sharing how to build a community where people could experience your brand in person or at scale. On this show, we talk with the brightest minds and companies on the planet about how to build customer-to-customer marketing strategies and create in-person experiences for your brand and customers before your competitor does. Our next guest, Kim Scott, has changed not just the entire tech industry, but work culture globally. She is the author of the best-selling book, Radical Candor, which pioneered a new way to communicate by caring personally, but also challenging people directly. She's had a legendary career, which inspired the book. At Google, she led the AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick online sales efforts. Then she went to Apple to develop their leadership seminar. In this interview, we break down how to use Radical Candor to get resources for your community, the art of storytelling, her own community around Radical Candor, and so much more. Enjoy. For the one person who doesn't know, can you explain what your book Radical Candor is all about? If you really want to abstract it up, Radical Candor is about love and truth at the same time. So Radical Candor is about how to create a culture where people really care about each other, but they also challenge one another so that mistakes get fixed. So it's about caring personally and challenging directly at the same time. One of the easiest ways to understand what Radical Candor is, is to think about what it's not. So sometimes we challenge people directly, but we forget to show them that we care. And that I call obnoxious aggression. And I used to just call it the asshole quadrant, but I stopped doing that for a really important reason because people would start to use radical candor as like a personality test. They would start to write names in boxes and judge people with these terms. And I beg you, don't do that. Use radical candor like a compass that helps you guide specific conversations with specific people to a better place. Yeah, I've heard you talk about this where not putting people in a box, where, and that could be even having someone that is you know, is climbing a ladder or someone that is like just really good at their job and really satisfied in their job, but sort of like taking each person that you work with is sort of looking at them as an individual versus like this sort of, I'm going to put you here and you fit into my little matrix. And an individual who changes. Like we all have moments in our careers where we're gunning for the next thing. And then we have moments in our careers where we're maybe great at our work, but we're investing our extra energy into something else in our lives. Yeah. And I think it's so important to let people change because if you want a growing organization, you want people to be changing, but you also want a stable organization. So you have to allow people to be stable for a while also. A lot of people write books, but very few have this sort of almost cult following or community that gets built around an idea like Radical Candor has. And, you know, as the creator of this sort of movement, how do you interact with the community? How do you, like, does it just spread organically? Do you actively do things to engage people in it? So I definitely, the short answer is, I don't really know how it happened. Uh, So maybe you can teach me what happened. But I think a big part of it is following, uh, not leading, but following the community and sort of understanding what is working for people and what is not working for people. I think one of the things I thought I could do early on is build this app. Mm. And the app was going to help people put the ideas in the book into practice. And the first app I built didn't work. The second app I built didn't work. The third, and I was getting discouraged as, as one does. 
And then I was at a performance that my daughter was having and she was singing, believe it or not, it's just me. And I was filming her and kind of looking at the phone. And then I looked up from the phone and looked at my actual daughter and the impact, like all of a sudden I had tears in my eyes. And I realized the whole idea of radical candor is about putting your phone in your pocket, looking people in the eye and having real conversations with them and understanding how what you're saying is landing. And so I killed the software company and or shut it down, I should say is a nice way to put it, and really have focused on doing in-person talks and workshops and growing, but growing not too fast, making sure that the other people, that the other candor coaches have a deep understanding of the philosophy before they go out there. I think, and you you talked about this just a minute ago about how you said, I don't know how it took off. It just kind of took off. I mean, you certainly put tons of work and you put decades of thought into these sort of frameworks and practices. At the same time, it does feel like there are great ideas that just sort of part of them being great is that they sort of succeed in spite of maybe us not really trying. I don't know. Like I've worked on so many things that failed miserably or that I worked unbelievably hard on and just like nobody cared about it except yeah. for my parents or, you know, my <laughs> sister or something. But then there are other things I've worked on where it's like, it just kind of like magic happens. Magic happens. And, yeah. and it's sort of that intersection of like working really hard, being really thoughtful, being a domain expert. And then this like magical thing that where this community kind of comes together and intersects. And I, it's really, I mean, we've, I just see it over and over again with Radical Candor. You just, it's sort of, it's become part of, it's like Google, it's like become a noun. Like it's like people are, they say it and they talk about it. They create, put in their values, they preach it. And, um, you know, it just has, I don't know, you kind of tapped into this vein of culture and work and being productive and, you know, just being, you know, somebody good to work with that I don't think anybody had tapped into. I think part of what happened with Radical Candor was that I was pretty honest about a lot of mistakes I made. Like I had struggled with it. And I think the Brene Brown writes really well about the power of vulnerability. And I think that that was part of what worked about Radical Candor. I think the other part of what worked about it was I tried to think about communication in a structured way. So developing this framework, this two by two framework and giving words to what we had all felt. We had all felt we wanted radical candor and none of us like ruinous empathy or manipulative insincerity. And I think another part of what the idea of radical candor taps into is this notion that we have to, this false choice that a lot of us feel like we have to make. We have to choose between being nice and being successful. And the truth is you don't have to make that choice. This was something I struggled with at the very beginning of my career. I had started the software company and like 10 people at the company sent me the same article about how people would rather have a boss who's a total asshole, but really competent than one who's really nice, but incompetent. And I thought, are they sending me this because they think I'm a jerk or because they think I'm incompetent? And surely those are not my two choices. (laughs) And so I think breaking free from that false dichotomy is part of what worked. But you just, you never know. It's so interesting. I was editing Radical Candor. And when I write, I sort of go into this writer's cave and I don't interact that much with the world. And I had made a promise for the folks at First Round Capital to go give this talk there at their CEO summit at one of their communities. And I woke up the morning of the talk and I was kind of annoyed with myself for having agreed to do it because I was like, I should really be editing. I should be all alone today editing. 
And it was that talk that first took off and sort of went viral and and I think helped light the light the fire. So some of it is you just you, you have to get out of the building. You got to you got to you got to get out and you got to talk to people. Yeah. You know, community managers often don't have a lot of resources and they're sort of pitching people up the chain of command. And I wonder how would you suggest as a community manager listening to this, you know, how do I approach my my boss or my boss's boss to get more resources or buy into a program that I deeply believe is going to have an impact, but, you know, but they may not. It's hard to measure. It's really it's hard to measure. I think this is the, the thing about community is that we all value it, but it's unlike sales. It's very hard to measure the impact that you're having. And that's a really interesting. In fact, I wrote a whole novel about this called The Measurement Problem. <laughs> about how capitalism is really good at rewarding what it can measure, really bad at rewarding what it values. And I think that very often community managers struggle with this problem. So I have, uh, you can use radical candor to begin to build your case. And then I have some more abstract advice too. I think the first thing that you can do is solicit feedback up the chain. Make sure you understand what your boss's struggles are, what your boss's priorities are, and how they view the work that you're doing, even if the answer is a little painful to hear. You, you're better off knowing than not knowing. So make sure that you are soliciting feedback and being open to it. You're, you're walking the walk. And then the next thing is to focus on what you appreciate about your boss. I think it's very easy for us to start treating our manager like a tyrant to be toppled, right? Instead of like another human being. So the more you can approach your boss or your boss's boss as another human being who is doing some stuff that you appreciate, you, you don't wanna you don't wanna give praise in the kissing up kind of way, but you, you wanna give voice to what you genuinely appreciate. And then you want to take time. And none of this stuff has to take forever. Soliciting feedback is a two-minute conversation. Giving praise is another two-minute conversation. And then you want to say at some point, you know, there's something that I want to talk to you about. Is now a good time? Or if radical candor is part of your lexicon, you can say, may I be radically candid with you? That's the value of a shared vocabulary is that it's a shortcut to conversations that are otherwise kind of, (laughs) there's a law to set up to them. And then you can offer some criticism about the budget you're getting or whatever in a way that's humble, helpful. You want to do it right away. I also want to kind of double click on this measurement thing, because in these moments where you're doing something and you know it has value, but you can't measure it, I think. And meanwhile, your boss is getting pitched by someone else who says, if you give me this $400,000, yeah, it's going to make you, it's going to triple that. And you're saying, well, if you give me this three hundred thousand dollars, it can make everybody feel really good. <laughs> you know, that's it's <laughs> that's very right. it's it's very hard. So I think try to be rigorous, measure what you can measure. But I think for the things that you cannot measure, come up with good, quick stories. I think another thing that worked about radical candor is that I told personal stories, and I told stories that were relatable. That everybody's been told they said um, too much <laughs> in a meeting. And that didn't seem like that profound of a story, this story where my boss told me I said I'm too often and I brushed her off and brushed her off. And finally she said, you sound stupid when you say I'm every third word. I'm like, oh, now I get it. So I think learning how to tell these quick stories to express 
the value of what of the things that are hard to measure is a great skill set for you to develop. Yeah, it's a really thoughtful analysis on the problem. And I think, first of all, like, I think people do recognize that, that there is this gap with community that you described, but I think people sort of feel like it's a mountain that can't be overcome. And the more companies that I talk to, like not everyone, but there are more and more companies that are finding ways to overcome. And I think, as you say, like measuring almost like measure anything, like just measure something yeah, and then maybe combine that with a story or maybe, uh, you know, get somebody in those, like get somebody in the experience itself somehow, you know, like those things can maybe move people to invest in something that the value is not quite so clear because maybe they, they click with it emotionally or they can relate to it personally or, you know, um, I don't know, but like at least like anything you've got, measure it, even if it's not like perfect or. Yeah. If you've got, if the number of people in your community is growing, I mean, you should know there's no reason not to measure. Right. Just because it doesn't translate to dollars and cents. The amount of time people are spending in the community, the actions that people take. There are some communities that may not be huge, but they have a huge impact because of the actions that they take. So make sure you're measuring a lot of different things. It was interesting at when I was working at Google, I was leading the AdSense online team. And this was a community really of millions of tiny publishers. And I mean, some of them got big. One of them started out tiny and became YouTube, right? Uh, and, and, then, wow. and then Google acquired it. But this is how we knew that YouTube was big because we watched it grow in, yeah. as an AdSense customer. And it was really a new kind of business. Like the traditional salespeople at Google didn't understand. They're like, you don't go play golf with your, with your I'm like, no, we, we, we don't go play golf with them. But, but it's like it's billions of dollars of revenue is pouring in. And so getting very rigorous about measuring every little thing that we did is what really helped us grow that business and also become more efficient in the way that we served that community. And that was really, it's an interesting point because so I'm managing a team of 700 recent college grads. And we're working at Google and like money's pouring in through the air conditioning vents, right? So it's not like profitability was super important or motivating to anyone up, down, or sideways. And so how can I get the team excited about efficiency when you're in this situation? And the fact of the matter was a lot of grunt work involved in serving this community. A lot of questions, like not a call center, but an email center, right? And by focusing on efficiency, we managed to automate the grunt work so that people could lift their heads up and do more interesting work. And so you got to make sure you're measuring what matters to people. If I had only translated it in terms of profitability, people wouldn't have been as excited about it. But if I measured it in terms of you all get to do more interesting work and you don't have to spend so much time doing this uninteresting work, then that was very motivating. In the book, you talk about leading people without sort of telling them what to do. Yeah. Telling people what to do doesn't people work. Like I'm that. just going to assert it. I've noticed that with children. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's funny. I, I was doing a podcast and I said, telling people what to do doesn't work. And my daughter was there and then we were having dinner and my husband told her to clear the table. I was pulling something out of the fridge and she said, dad, telling people what to do doesn't work. (laughs) I had to stick my head into the refrigerator so she didn't see me laughing. That's amazing. Um, 
Yeah, I know this is like we could probably talk for hours about this, but just especially in community, like, you know, we call customer to customer marketing. That's what the podcast is called C to C, because it's really like getting your customers out there to sort of empower them to be your biggest advocates. And yeah. you can't tell them what to say. They don't work for you. Like you can just sort of lead them and give them tools. And like how, you know, from your experience, like how can I best lead someone without telling them what to do? What, like, yeah. what should I do? Yeah. So I developed this thing called the get stuff done wheel and it starts with listening. And this is, I think this is a big part of radical canter, like listening to what people were saying about it and understanding how they were using it. And there was some surprising stuff happening that was unpredictable. So you want to listen first and then you want to help people clarify. So very often someone will come to you and they'll say something. You'll hear a customer saying something about your product and it doesn't sound just right, but Rather than debating, jumping in, you want to help people clarify their thinking because new ideas are fragile. They're very fragile. And very often when someone says something, it's a new idea. And you don't want to just trample it. You want to help cultivate that by helping them clarify what it is that they're saying and trying to understand it before you start debating it. So you want to listen, clarify. And then once these thoughts and ideas that people have are ready for a debate, you want to create a forum and an expectation that debate is a good way to get more people on board with this idea because there's going to be another point of view. So you want to be open. And that's scary. A public debate about your product can feel risky and scary, but it's very powerful if you're able and willing to let that debate happen. And then you want to, it's very tempting to leap straight to decide. You want to make sure that you make decisions based on the debate. So don't decide too quickly how you're going to tell your customers to talk about your product. You want to listen, you want to help them clarify, you want to allow a debate to happen, sometimes even in public. And then you want to decide what's going to happen. And then now it's not you deciding, ideally, it's your customers deciding. So your job is to make sure that a decision gets made on time, not to be the decider. It's very a very common fallacy of leadership is to say, I'm the decider. You're not, actually. You're the person who makes sure that the right people make the right decisions in the right time. And then not everyone will have gone through this process of listen, clarify, debate, decide. Now you got to persuade the broader community that this decision was the right one. So a classic example of this was when Steve Jobs announced that he was going to launch iTunes for the Windows platform. And for the Apple faithful, for his community, this was heresy. I've seen that video yeah. where they, he takes questions from like yeah. the developers. Yeah, and- it's like you are betraying everything right. you taught us to believe. And the way he announced it is so interesting. Hell froze over. So what was persuasive to the community was not necessarily... Well, we have to do this because after all, Windows has 98% of the market share. Like that would have been a betrayal of the faith. But to say we did this, we're going to do it once, hell froze over, it'll never happen again, (laughs) was, was a great way to persuade the community to get on board with this decision that he had made that was very unpopular with the community. And so now you've persuaded everybody, you still have to learn. Maybe your decision was wrong, right? 
Maybe you persuaded people to do the wrong thing. You have to be willing to learn that you've made a mistake. And then you got to start the whole wheel all over again. That's why it's a wheel. Then you got to start listening and then clarifying. And, and it's tiring, this wheel. And it feels at first inefficient. It feels like it would be easier to be the... Just go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. If I were the uncontested leader, then everything That's would right. be a lot easier. But you're never the uncontested leader. We'd love to finish these with just, we have all these community leaders talking about their own communities, but could you tell us about a community that you love, that you're a part of that's not something that you build, or maybe it is something you're part of that you build, or just something you enjoy? You know, it's so, I was thinking about it. I don't know if I'm allowed to say my family is a community. I think that's the best community. But it is certainly is my favorite community. It was interesting. I was talking to somebody who was asking me about my work. Uh, somebody, a, a relative, and they were saying, oh, it must be so interesting out there in the world. And it is interesting. But I said, the interesting people are these two. My kids were on either side of me. So it is, to me, the most dynamic, interesting community, little community around. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this. If you'd like to see more about how to create your own event community, go to bevylabs.com slash pod. Again, that's B-E-V-Y-L-A-B-S dot com slash pod.